here we go. Spring of 2020. This is the 1080 Outdoors Podcast Land Management Series, where our main focus is pursuing the truth for everyday hunters like you. I wouldn't say it's kind of an FU, it's definitely an FU. Chronicle and document how our season's going and give you real-time updates, overall land management practices. You have to find a way to hunt big buck where they are. Joined with Jason Snavely on the Tenney Outdoors podcast. Jason, thank you for joining us. Yeah, Taylor, appreciate you having me. Looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah, I know it's super busy time for you right now. What? Why don't you kind of dive into and explain uh, background on who you are, what you do, um, kind of what you're up to right now, and we're sitting in June, early June, so the different management stuff you're doing right now for clients. Yeah, so so again, my name's Jason Snavely. I'm a certified wildlife biologist, and I've uh, been running my own consulting company, uh, working with private and corporate landowners since uh, had on here actually i know i've talked about it on the podcast when we have our round tables but um to actually have someone that practicing this in a hunting scenario and not just an agricultural scenario is is rare but i think it is getting a little bit more uh common i saw some <laughs> some of the well-known gurus in the hunting industry got a little i've seen both or two different ones in the last week that made comments on different videos or posts about people attacking them about using herbicide and so there's there is some uh there is a group of group of internet warriors out there um starting to make some noise i don't know if uh and i joined your facebook group and i know those guys all are probably in there yeah you know it's um the regenerative the closed group the regenerative wildlife group is fun because it's a group of like-minded folks and we don't really hammer on anybody for you know choosing any of the conventional methods you know truthfully I'm not saying 110% that chemicals need to go away. I just, you know, it's, it's probably a tool we should keep in the toolbox um, in the event that we need it. I haven't used it in, in two, three seasons now, but um, in some applications, and I've actually sort of moved over into the, the agriculture space just because it was the natural thing to do. So I am doing a lot more work in the ag uh, as well as the vineyard orchard. Uh, industries, if you will, and, and sometimes chemicals are, are uh, I don't want to say necessary, but they're they're helpful to make sure that uh, a profit or a yield is yeah. achieved. But very being 
fortunate us, those of us who are into food plots and the wildlife aspect of it, I can honestly see very little or no need whatsoever for not only the, the caustic chemicals, but also the synthetic fertility programs. Yeah, I mean, you just said it. If, if you're feeding your family because of the crops and the yield that you get and the money in return, yeah, maybe using it, you know, it, it, everyone has their own equation to make money. So if that, if it works out and it works for that, but for wildlife purposes, if you're not even harvesting the yield or getting a return on that, I mean, what is it? Do you see a, you know, there's the, the real reason for it is just, a lot of times I think it is just the way it looks because people want it to look nice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I was actually having that conversation with my wife here recently. She's not into hunting. She's you know, just, just sort of obviously always been a part of it because of what I do. And, you know, she used to yell at me for not keeping the house weeded around the landscape. And now I, I notice she's, you know, sort of letting things go. And, and, you know, from a conventional standpoint anyway, because you start to see, or at least all of us have seen, the positive impacts from eliminating synthetics and chemicals from the farm. The entire farm comes to life, and, and we see birds now and insects and, you know, things that we've never seen before. So, you you know, you start to change your mindset as far as what looks good. You know, it may not make a magazine cover, um, but it would, it would certainly make my magazine cover because yeah. I know what's going on under the ground, and I think that's what, you know, we, we can tangibly grab a plant, understand it, see how it's working. But none of us realize that we're standing on the rooftop of a whole other world and there's a lot going on down there. Yeah, we actually just had a, a well digged on the property that we just bought. And it's interesting how many different layers come out of there. Um, and it's definitely not just black dirt underneath there. Um, no, there's a lot going on in there. There's a, it's a whole biological system or ecological system. There's a food web. You know, we, we talk about predator-prey relationships as terrestrial land managers and ecologists, right? We always talk about coyotes and wolves and, you know, how they prey on um, or predate on, on species like deer and mule deer and elk and such. But we, we never really sit down and comprehend that this is why it was such a simple shift for me is it's a biological system. And as a biologist, <laughs> it makes perfect sense. So it's been a, a fairly easy um, shift for me once I committed 110%. Yeah. And before we get too far into your current framework, why don't you kind of give a background on what you're, how you were managing properties in the past? I mean, you're doing, you've done about 20 years of consulting and property management for people. So what were your frameworks before and kind of explain the process of how it's changed? Well, you know, going to Mississippi State, which is a, a big time deer school and, and game species, black bears, predators, bobwings quail, you know, the whole nine yards, um, we were really trained to focus on the natural habitat, which is extremely important, certainly not, um, you know, talking down on that, but, you know, the, sort of the idea was that these food plots were, they were just a sexy marketing scheme that, you know, private firms used to, to make money, so not that they were completely shot down, but that was certainly not the focus, and moving into the private sector, um, I quickly realized that, that my next check was a function of how attractive I made a property and, and 
you know how how satisfied my clients were. So I'm, obviously, at that point, when you're young and uh, trying to buy your own land and your own pickup truck, you start to get pretty creative. And I realized rather quickly that agriculture, whether it's food plots or or you know true agriculture, was very very important uh, for the nutritional carrying capacity of a property. And we you know we've done a lot of you know, through college, you do a lot of talk on carrying capacity and sex ratio and, you know, population characteristics and such, um, but it's primarily from a, a wild, native, natural habitat standpoint, whether it's, you know, timber harvest, um, uh, prescribed fire, the whole nine yards. So, moving into the agricultural space, you know, I didn't grow up as a farmer, so it was, it was not an easy it was not an easy move for me, but I got to know some, you know, some very large farmers, and <laughs> ironically learned how to farm from from guys who were still conventional. Uh, I call them recreational tillers. Um, you know, they're out there right now replanting corn, which is a uh, which is a warm season grass, but they're replanting it because they planted it the first time back in April, you know, March and April, and. The, uh, obviously, the, the stand failed and, uh, for many reasons, but they're out there planning it again when when I'm putting it in the ground for the first time. So I'm kind of scratching my head wondering why they're doing all this. But um, So, you know, the way that we talk about regenerative ecology or regenerative agriculture now is, is certainly by no means to look down on the conventional approach. Um, I was there. That's how I learned. And I think had I not learned that method the first time around, this would not all make so much sense. Um, you know, I had to do it, you know, with the plows and the discs and cultivators the packers and the sprayers. And if I didn't do that for, you know, 10, 15 years, a little longer actually, I probably wouldn't understand what it means now to go out there and sink a shovel or a spade in the soil and see so much life in that, in that soil. So... Um, that, that's sort of the, where we came from, and, and uh, now I, I think we're we're doing things 180 degrees differently than what we've always done them. Yeah, and what was your what would you say like the breaking like what pushed you over the edge? I know you did some. Uh, did it stem back to your time in the seed industry, doing some work with with different companies there? What was the thing that finally was the breaking point? Yeah, I think I. industry for Tecamati and some others and of course I worked closely with all of them at the time and you know in discussions about what particular species should go in you know together and just just the all-around annual program of a food source management um, strategy I think it, it, it sort of stems back to that and you, you know I, I was hired as a consultant to make recommendations on individual species or proportions or planting dates or what have you. And when you make those recommendations as a consultant, you sort of expect to see them, you know, go through with that. And so many times they would they would uh, pay you for your advice but not see it through. And it, it sort of makes you wonder what, you know, what they're thinking. And then I suppose after so many years of doing that and planting my own food plot, uh, if I didn't have my own properties to, to get dirty, you know, on my own dirt to dig in, 
I don't think any of this stuff would have hit me in the head as, as hard as it did, but um, I, I think of a couple of different times now where I went out. You know, I, I used to do an annual review after the season was over. Everybody was kind of moved on. I would go out there, you know, February, March, somewhere in that, usually February, late January, and, and just go out in the field and sit and just really observe and, and try to think of how that particular field um, you know, manipulated deer movement and how it was a success or what we could have done better, how it was a failure. And I can remember looking down at the ground and, and thinking to myself, this doesn't seem right. There's there's something wrong here. It's, it's kind of like I was on a sheep hunt, you know, climbing from rock to rock. There, there should be no, no agricultural system can be considered functional, fully functional um, under those conditions physically. And then I started to think about the biological aspect of what was going on, and that's when it clicked for me. And, uh, of course, I took several months off just to travel and talk to people who were looking at things differently and had been doing things differently for, geez, a decade. Some of them, like David Brandt, you know, he, David's been doing this since, you know, I was born in 1978. He's been no-tilling since. 1978 so certainly yeah. nothing new it's just there's too many people who are um, scared to take the jump and they're not leaders and thanks to people like David Brandt and Rick Haney and those guys were, were now pretty much picking up a lot of steam and still taking a lot of shots which is really fun to, to be teased and people you know, laugh at the no-tilling movement and soul health but uh, we know we're quite confident that we're on the right side of history when you're working with nature to mimic nature um, there's just no question at all that, that it's the right side of history yeah yeah I would agree that's that you that's similar to kind of when I started questioning everything because I hunt a I grew up hunting a corn and alfalfa rotation um, egg farm like conventional farm dairy farm and you know, the corn gets chopped, like, second week of October, and these days, I mean, there's nothing left. Um, deer would hit it for, like, you know, two days. I knew I knew I'd have. And then, obviously, alfalfa wouldn't, you know, it'd be great early season and then be gone. And that whole farm would pretty much be a desert uh, after November. So my season would always end, Dece and, like, I'd never be able to get anything going in December. And it just kind of wrote it up as that's how this thing goes and then you'd get deeper into you know seeing how other people hunt and and knowing that it is possible to have a ton of deer on your property in the winter time um so that, that that's kind of how it started for me too is sitting out there in, in the winter and being like how is there's just no deer here and questioning all that but yeah that's, that's yeah you know ironically we we never had any any aha moments due to lack of deer. It was it was more so a um, how do I say this? A lack of an ecological continuum. It just you know we, we had plenty of deer from the synthetic standpoint. Um, you know as I described this to others, you know uh, the the current food plotting model or the the food plotting model really hasn't changed since the 80s but you know every you hear them talking about yield and it's because they also learn from the agricultural world you know there's a couple companies out there who food plot marketing companies who sort of 
give off this idea and image that they're they're walking around on a farm in you know Alabama with a white lab coat and they're crossbreeding plants and making you know a, a deer specific clover. I'm here to tell you, there's not enough money. You can take the top five food plot marketing seed companies. I, I call them marketing because none of them really grow their own seed. Truthfully, um, some of them are in a niche niche market like Eagle Seed, but they're all sourcing the same seed that that anyone else, and it's through the agricultural industry. So there's just not enough. You can take the top five food plot companies, and it's it's a drop in the bucket from a revenue profitability. Would you, know, you would laugh at, at this really small profit levels. Um, but you know, for so long, uh, the food plot industry sort of followed, and still is following the agricultural industry and chasing yield. Like we have to run grain across some scale, or you know, I still hear people, you know, consultants or food plot guys talk about yield, yield, yield. Well. I'm here to tell you, it doesn't matter how much you yield, if if your food plot forage is not nutrient dense, if it doesn't taste like those tomatoes from your grandfather's garden or your grandmother's garden, and you're lacking phytochemical richness, well, you know, you can produce as much garbage as you want. You will not outcompete those of us in the regen world who are looking at this is feeding the microbial life, building soil health, and creating a new, you know, a nutrient-dense plantscape. It's just, it all made sense in theory, and now in application, um, it's just, it's killer. It's, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, I want to get into um, kind of your observations now of, of, you know, making the switch and how it's, how it's changed your hunting, but, but quickly, I know we've been, we've mentioned Gabe Brown's name a couple of times as someone that uh, obviously both of us have, have read his material and studied some of his stuff. Um, so he refers to the five practices of soil. And uh, do, do you want to get into that a little bit of how um, that's kind of the way I'm forming my framework? Um, sure. It's pretty much yeah, just following you know, those burn, five practices. I can burn through them pretty quickly. I think, um, you know, they, oh, you're, actually, yeah, a year or so ago, they, they kind of got together, Gabe and his group, and understanding ag. And, and so you know we think there needs to be a sixth one, uh, a sixth principle, soil health principle, and it's context. And uh, I like to put it first. They put it sixth, and they certainly are not the only ones defining what the top five or six are, but they, they certainly make sense. But context, I think, is is perfect for us in the food plotting world because, you know, you, get, you kind of frame it up into your context. You know, I always yep. tell people, don't take this. You know, if we talk about a roller crimper, that doesn't mean you need to go out and buy a roller crimper. Or if we talk about a no-till drill, frame it up into your context and use what you have at your disposal. Don't use these excuses that you you know you can't limit disturbance, which is number one, by the way, soil disturbance, um, because you don't have a no-till drill or, or what have you. Um, just just take what you have and go. So, of course, you know soil disturbance. It can be physical or chemical, right? Any, any chemical herbicides or, or sides, insecticides, pesticides, whatever you use. I'm here, to, you know, I've been doing a lot more work on the microbial life in soil. That's what interests me now. And I'm here to tell you that chemicals have a, have, actually they have an incredible impact on the microbial life. Uh, there's actually, <laughs> there are some, some herbicides that take a lot of heat currently that um, 
actually seem to do good things to microbial life, which I'll probably take some heat for saying that. I'm certainly not promoting that. But, uh, you know, armoring the soil um, is another principle that was extremely important for me and most of the wildlife world. When you go out there and you look at soil that has been, um, you know, naked, um, as, as Ray Archuleta says, you know, it's naked, it's thirsty, it's starving, it's hungry, it's, it's bare. Um, it's so painful for me. I went for a walk this morning about four and a half miles through the country with my wife, and I'm watching conventional farmers, you know. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's almost painful now to see that much dirt revealed, you know. It looks like a hardwood floor when they're done. It's, it's, it's nice and tidy and neat, but my goodness, they're, they're losing so much carbon and they're, they're losing, you know, burning up so much microbial life. So you realize it, you realize it after a rain too. Like it looks really nice after they plow it up, till it up and make it, you know, look like a, a perfect uh, field. But then it rains and you see that hard, like how hard it is. And you're like, how the hell is a plant even going to come out of there? And they do, yeah, but it's, you know, they're so not even the, before the plant can do its thing, the, the impact that that has on the microbial right. life, you know, the, the plants can't do anything about the microbes and the microbes can't survive without the plants. It's, it's sort of the system that, believe it or not, uh, you know, kind of formed well before we got here and felt the need to destroy things and, you know, everything from plowing to pushing over statues. But, uh, you know, so we know you, the you best. The that, <laughs> yeah. I won't, I won't get into that. I just yeah. thought I'd inject that. Uh, we, we've had a pretty serious impact on Earth. I'm certainly not one of these green movement kind of people, but um, I think any hunter, fisher, um, any ecologist, uh, we, we, we enjoy Earth and we want to pass it on. If you have kids, I, I want my kids to enjoy it like I do. So, you know, putting plant residue on the soil is habitat and food the microbial life and without doing that you know you, you might as well just throw in the towel but you know and obviously if you have um the, the living roots are extremely important if you have the plants growing you have living roots and those living roots give off fruit exudates which is really just a a liquid carbon there's a lot of other um, compounds that that exude from plant roots but you know those are byproducts of photosynthesis which microbes cannot do, seeing as how they live in, in a subaquatic ecosystem in the soil. But those exudates that are pumped out of those roots, that's what feeds the microbes. So without the plants, without the roots, you don't have microbes. It's a pretty simple system. It's what fifth grade science. Um, the diversity is somewhere that we sort of capitalized on, um, or, or I did with the Reload series. I'm super proud of that. I'm still hoping that more of the, the common popular food plotting, you know, Bass Pro Shops, shiny bag people will follow along. Unfortunately, I don't think they will. It's too simple of an idea. <laughs> but when you have a diversity of the major plant groups in a blend, you're then pushing off a, a diverse group of, of exudates, of root exudates, which increases the uh, greater diversity of microbial life. So... I always say to clients, you know, not a, a good steak or a filet, say an axis deer filet is amazing. It's the best venison you can get. But after, you know, two, three, four weeks or, or a growing season of eating axis filet, you might need to go to something else, even if it's a baked potato or a salad or what have you. So, 
you know, having the, the diversity of plants is extremely important as well. Um, you know, I look at a plant now like a solar panel. If you think of a chicory leaf, it's, it's sort of, you know, it's shaped completely differently than, than a, uh, maybe a triticale, you know, a grass or a corn. Um, and then a clover's got its own kind of shape. So they're all capturing sunlight at a different angle um, and a different amount and then giving off that root exodus. So, you know, the diversity, the living roots, um, and then you, you sort of mentioned this in our intro when you and I were chatting about the animal integration. Obviously, you know, you brought up Gabe's name and, and Salatin and some others. You know, those guys are heavily into the, you know, grazing livestock and larger animals. Uh, th- those animals were, were here well before we got here. and Just their physical impact, their hoof impact, their saliva, their dung, the urine. Uh, we know from ecological data that that's extremely important for that cycle, than the, you know, the, the biological cycle with the microbes. So, you know, again, context, I think, always rounds it out quite perfectly. I always tell guys, you know, I, I don't have cattle. Uh, just because I travel so much, I just I, I wouldn't have time to, to do what I need to do, even though a lot of my egg my egg guys or friends are urging me to get cattle. Um, you know, I have a very high deer density, which I like, I think is sustainable, contrary to what a lot of other people uh, believe. Um, and they do have a positive impact, not, not just the, the ungulates, but uh, some of the other animals, uh, the birds. Um, you know, the insect life that this system brings on is just absolutely incredible. Had you uh, ever so looked in? I, I have you I ever went through those. I think I hit them all. I kind of went yeah. through five, and I, you know, context is a key one there. Yeah, have you ever considered as a replacement to, like, the idea of rotational grazing with livestock to actually create some form of paddocks in your food plots and allow the high density of deer to do the same thing? We did. Yeah, we did, and, and, and I had, you know, I've been sort of playing around with that over the years. We have the ability um, to attract so many deer that, that it, it's feasible, and actually, I used, in the wintertime, I used some supplemental feed stations that are on skids, and, you know, obviously, I can, I can here we go, you know, right, the, the, some of my peers, the biologists and the hunters who think we're, we're killing our deer with CWD, are going to email me hate mail and everything. But, you know, we, we, we concentrated critters to feed stations and found really great hoof impact, dunging urine, saliva, and we would move those feeders almost on a daily basis. So, you know, I know I've got some clients in Texas and other places where they feed a lot. You know, a lot, at those areas around the feeders, there's a lot of hair, there's a lot of dung. There's no vegetation. To some, it looks, you know, like a disease-infested area. Uh, and it could be. You know, it very well could be. But we moved ours around a lot. And then we also used electric fences to, to help corral them and move them. Um, at the end of the day, what I found on my farm certainly had a positive impact. But we've got so we have such a high deer density, I couldn't justify the time. Um, involvement now. If I send my 14-year-old out to move the feeder every second or third day, I'm game for that. Um, but yeah, as far as getting too heavily into moving them through fences and such, 
I think it might be sexy to run a YouTube video and maybe, you know, promote that. It's kind of cool, kind of fun. But uh, I'm not sure everybody can really justify a return on that investment. But absolutely would work. Yeah, I, I honestly had never even considered it until um, how you were just talking about having a higher density. Um, so, yeah, you're pretty much – the feeder thing is the same thing as mimicking what farmers do where they just, they put bales out in different locations throughout the winter and, and let them – Yeah, and, you know, and, you know we, we have actually used bale grazing with you – know, white-tailed deer are concentrate selectors. They're not really grazers or browsers like people like to call them. They're, they're very um, – you know, they possess a nutritional wisdom where they're quite um, quite intimately in tune with flavor and nutrient density and plant secondary compounds and medicinal value, everything we talk about all the time. But, um, you know, they, we have, we've used some alfalfa bales and we've actually rolled out some, some bales as well to try to get them you know, to, to simulate what the grazers do, which is, you know, high stock densities. Um, bale grazing and they you know obviously the hoof impact sort of mashes all that uh, plant residue uh, down into the soil and obviously when you concentrate them there they dung and they urine and you know my, most of my peers hear that and they especially if they're sitting in an office in a green uniform or a suit and tie and, and I you know a lot of them are good friends of mine but we just we disagree wholeheartedly I like to think about nature they like to think about the textbook and you know it sounds like a disease infestation situation but to me it's nature yeah do you guys have CWD in in Pennsylvania we, we do yeah we do okay we yeah. do and, and there you know we can still supplementally feed obviously we can't we can't bait during the hunting season but we can supplementally feed pulled out 30 days ahead of the season um, and then obviously, you know, there's some years we don't really kill too many deer. So we shut the hunting down and put the feeders out and do our thing. Or one of my kids would kill a buck and then we're done. Um, we're not real hard on the, on the bucks here. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do that and shut it down and put the feed out. But they're, they're pushing pretty heavily. And I'm, I'm quite confident based on the, um, all the stuff that's going on in the last couple of years between CWD and the COVID overreaction I'm, I'm quite confident the state of pennsylvania and, and those who haven't already um, are going to frown upon supplemental feeding but i think that's unfortunate but uh, it is what it is you can't stop politics sometimes no we uh <laughs> try to stay away from it that's that's my goal <laughs> um so if you want, could, could you talk a little bit more about your actual blends and the diversity that you create in them um, compared to what the traditional food plot seed blends are? Yeah, so, so I, I, I took some time off and, and started studying species complementariness. And what I found in, um, in doing some work with some other researchers is that there's, there's not only are there, are there a team of plants, I like to use the football team, approach because I'm a football fan um, you know a team performs better when all 11 sort of understand their role and and they may also understand the role of you know the center may understand the role of the tailback you know if he's coming through the two hole he knows what hole to open up but everybody has to sort of perform their duty and when you look at a mix a, a mix of plants that's how you know in, in nature 
nature has her own mix. And what, one of the things that always bothered me when working with, you know, the White Tail Institutes and the Tecumanis and the Evolved and those guys, and, and again, a lot of them are friends, they're great people, but what bothered me is they, they tried to keep things simple so that everybody could use a specific chemical or a couple of chemicals to eliminate and annihilate what they called weeds. But I look at nature and I say nature is nothing but mixes. And, you know, obviously there's there's some, um, a lot of, uh, you know, species complementariness going on. So when I started the Reload series, you know, there were a lot of things that went on from, you know, deer movement and, and our inability to hold certain bucks that we realized, okay, we can, we can create these, these blends of biological primers that sort of work together and everything has its own role in that mix. So that, that is now how, how we do that. And, you know, we have found some really neat things. Some of the, some of the best feedback or the, 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 the best lessons learned I get are from clients because, as you can imagine, if you're the kind of guy who buys his own land and you hire a wildlife consultant, you're you're pretty <laughs> you're pretty ate up with this stuff, right? You're you're pretty committed. So when those guys get out there and they start planting things and they, they take note, they observe. Um, it's pretty neat now after doing this for a couple of years and getting clients actually over their first two or three years of this, and they start to notice, hey, you know, I. I had a client the other day say to me, all right, I thought I would just test you and maybe cheat on you a little bit. So I love this hairy veg that you always plant. You roller crimp down. And, you know, we have it in a certain proportion in multiple blends. And so, so what they thought was, well, you know, humans tend to think if, if, you know, two pounds is good, 10 pounds or 20 pounds is great. So... They took half their field, or he took half his field. I've had others do this as well. And he planted a straight monoculture, maybe a little bit of cereal rye or some crimson clover, but he went, you know, heavy, 20 pounds of, of hairy veg. He's going to outdo me, and he's going to produce a pretty serious mat of plant residue and drill into it. And he sent me a picture here about a week ago, and he said, this is unreal. You've got a, a certain amount, a small amount of hairy veg in your mix, I've got primarily hairy vetch. I suspected my stand would look like a jungle, and and yours, you know, wouldn't be nearly nearly as thick and lush. But the species, the the, the multi-species biological primers worked together so well that the hairy vetch was about 18 inches taller, and it was even thicker in our blend, the, the fall reload that I that we have, than it was in the the monoculture or the minimal culture. And that, that was not only an aha moment for him, but it was kind of fun for me to have someone say, well, what if, you know, the, this whole questioning thing, what if, what if I do this and maybe I can beat Jason? You know, the, the best things in life come when we compete against one another. And, um, I think that, that was a lesson that I wish most food plotters could, could have seen physically walk out of that field and say, okay, wow, this is incredible. You know, we can we can grow 15 to 17 different species in a blend, and whereas we used to always, you know, hear everybody say, "Wow, well, they're going to compete. You know, you're going to have competition. You can't do that." That's just simply. I'm here to tell you that's that, that is such bad information. It should be criminal to to keep 
hammering on this, you know, multi-species blends, compete against one another, and they don't produce as much yield. That's just, it's complete hogwash. Yeah. And <clears throat> can we explain a little bit more in depth um, kind of what is, I don't, you don't need to say what exactly is in fall reload, but the idea of what you can plant to be attractive, you know, in the late fall through the winter, because I'm guessing it, it needs to be uh, something that deer can, um, you know, live on through the winter, but also that will come up um, and be terminated with a crimp roller in the spring. And, um, you know, the crimp roller thing is <clears throat> super interesting to me and intriguing just because of the, I love turkey hunting just almost as much as deer hunting. And it, that tall um, new growth in the spring is so important for turkeys. And to be able to just use a crimp roller or cattle to terminate that stand and then drill right into it what you need um i mean that should be so intriguing for anyone because it's the best of both like it's best of everything hmm. absolutely well you know uh, and i don't have a problem sharing the species in it i always tell people the reason i don't is because well there's a couple of reasons i don't share the exact feel sometimes i do but i, I try not to Let, let's take fall reload and well the reload series in general, there's 15 to 17, sometimes 19 different species and varieties. Number one, I reserve the right to change that at any point in time. We're constantly looking for new, um, you know, synergies between individual species or, in, you know, inter-species, intra-species. So I'm changing it all the time. Number two, we could take fall reload, plant it on your new farm that you bought, plant it on my farm here, and I can almost guarantee you, I can guarantee you that those two plots will look different. It won't be like buying a fall, you know, one of my old, one of my first fall hunting plots was fall fuel. And it was developed, while, you know, after working with, you know, fruit plot companies and clients all over the country. It will kill deer, uh, as many deer as you want to kill or until it's gone. But it would look the same. It would always look the same because there were five or six different species of brassicas, maybe a cereal, and they would all reveal themselves. When you plant 15 or 16, 17 different species in a soil, depending on what your soil, on the conditions, on the previous management, on the environmental conditions, it's always going to reveal differently and show differently. Um, based on the given conditions in that field. So that's pretty fun. That's neat. You know, guys will say, well, send me a picture of what fall reload looks like. I'll snap them a picture. I'll say, here's one that made a cover of a magazine, but there's no guarantee that yours is going to look anything like it. <laughs> there's a pretty, you know, to, to most people, it might look fairly similar. But um, so, so I looked at things, instead of chasing the one, you know, Alice White Clover, for instance, when I was kind of a rookie, food clock, I were a consultant, if you will, um, working with these companies. Alice White Clover was an amazing white clover, winter hardiness, high stolen densities. It just performed fantastically. Uh, hell, you could even spray it with Gly and 2,4-D oftentimes and still not kill it. Um, that's a good thing and a bad thing. But instead of focusing now on individual species or individual varieties, I find it's more important or more beneficial to focus on the plant type, on major plant groups or the plant types. So, for instance, grasses like cereals, right? Corn is a grass, sorghum, sudan, millet, those sorts of things. They're grasses. Grasses 
do very well with legumes. For those of you who plant monoculture legume plots or clover plots, you can probably see where this is going. You spray your clover to kill the grasses, what comes back? More grasses. That's because you're working against nature. Nature's trying to fight to maintain a certain carbon-nitrogen ratio. So we, we try to hit the major plant functional groups and, you know, um, the forbs, uh, the weeds, if you will, you know, chicory, plantain, and then the brassicas. And, of course, I mentioned the legumes, which are always important, but not in a monoculture. In a monoculture, they're destructive uh, to, to the soil health. But, so that, that's really how we've changed. And then we, we tweak and manipulate the percentages and the individual species, whether it's a cool season or a warm season, uh, based on the time of year. So a guy could certainly go out there and do this on his own. I, I really, I'd love, I'd love to see a guy get that knowledgeable and uh, involved that he can manipulate his carbon nitrogen and, and do things that way. But I'll be honest with you, when I went to, to all of the food plot companies and pitched this idea back before I just decided to do it on my own, um, they, they couldn't source, you know, that high diversity of seeds it's, it's a very costly thing to maintain inventory of seed you know and when I was mentioning things like flax and plantain and Cecilia and then you know crimson clover and those sorts of things everybody sort of had them but you know um, as I just showed a client who visited me yesterday I almost always have flax in my small grain box or my salt my small box and my drill uh, just because I want to get it out there with Cecilia and Cubam uh, sweet clover and, and many many others. So that's that's sort of how we we change things. And and again, you, you know, you might be surprised and see a, a specific species change, but you will always see grasses, legumes, you know, broadleaf forbs, um, brassicas, and then what I consider the soil health improvers like flax and uh, you know phacelia and. Obviously, the beneficial insect uh, habitat slash pollinator species. Yeah. Um, so, is there specific things that you put in that blend that can be terminated with a roller crimper? Like, if you went over a, just a standing perennial clover field, would a roller crimper then terminate it, or would you? What's your technique to transition that to maybe like an annual? Um, yeah. So, so a couple of things. Um, no, first of all, not all plants crimp terminate. Um, the other thing I want to point out is that it's my fault for lack of educating people, but the reload series was not developed just for the roller crimper use. The roller crimper is a tool that can be used. Um, but no, the, you know, if you think about buckwheat or you think about cereal rye right now or wheat even here soon, uh, you know, in your maybe your farming community or neighborhood, if you go out there and you know, open your pickup door and jump out as, as the seed head matures and just kind of pop, you know, crack that thing down over and crimp that plant. If it feels like a straw, like a drinking straw inside, it's a crimpable or a crimp terminating type plant. Now, obviously, the perennial clovers are not, you know, they're not going to crimp terminate. Um, I do think you can set them back a little bit, and nature is very resilient. So, uh, you know, I actually... I will run my crimper over perennial clover and, you know, it's maybe act like, you know, some, some cattle deer moving through or whatever. I think it stimulates not only the plant, but it stimulates the microbial life in the soil as well. But, um, yeah, so 
what I like about the Reload series is we almost always have a certain percentage of plants that will factually crimp terminate. So when we talk about monocultures and getting away from monocultures, you know, as humans, everything, you know, we, we, we like to control everything, right? And the nature, the nature likes to be diverse. Nothing in nature is, is the same ever. So if I run over a stand and I get a 25% success, if you will, crimp terminate, I'm thrilled. I'm tickled because I've got 25% down there where the biology can now start working on that plant residue. I've got soil armor, so when it rains, those plants are down there deflecting that moisture, you know, those raindrops before they hit the, the bare naked soil. And I've got some species that just did not crimp terminate for whatever reason that are still standing. And in a wildlife scenario, how does it get any better than that? And it's almost like a planned um, failure, if you will, or planned disturbance. And it's, it's worked really, really well for us. It's worked really, really well for the, the overall soil health. And now that I'm studying microbial life, um, they seem to react and respond quite positively to that sort of that thought process. But uh, the days of, you know, going out there and nuking a field, starting with, a, you know, a crispy, crunchy brown field, which was me at one time, uh, it just uh, this is not going to ever happen. And, you know, it's, 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 there's really no benefit to that whatsoever unless you're going to build a Walmart. Yeah. Um, and, and talking about, let, let's talk quickly about the two, you know, most popular conventional food plot, um, crops is corn and beans. Are you, have you moved away from them more now? Have you just started using soybeans in, in, uh, in large variety mixes? And if you're planting corn, is it, are you making sure there's a uh, cover crop in there with it or are you not planting corn yeah, at all anymore? So there's, there's a lot going on there. Um, yeah. Great question. No, no, I have not eliminated those, those, those. Anybody, any deer guy who would eliminate those two plants would have to be foolish. Um, the way that we, the way that we employ those two plants, very, very different, has changed a lot. Um, I'll give you an example. First, with soybeans, Summer Reload has soybeans in it. It also has cowpeas and uh, sun hemp and obviously some other legumes, but. Um, as far as the monoculture stands, now, just in case somebody was flying a drone over two days ago, it, it did, in fact, I admit, plant a monoculture stand of beans directly into a crimp terminate blend. What I have found is two things. Number one, soybeans do very, very well in a blend, like summer reload. Um, and number two, and, and the deer, well, the deer obviously are just as equally attracted to that summer plot as they are to a monoculture soybean plot. Um, but the other thing is after two or three or even four years of the regenerative approach to farming, you, you get your soils to a point where you can actually put in, I don't want to call it a monoculture stand, but if you could imagine my, you know, the, the field that I crimp terminated um, probably had 16 to 18 different species in it. Um, primarily, I mean, it was it was probably a 90% effective crimp terminate, which is fairly good for, for a crimper. And I drilled soybeans into it. Now, would I ever do that in a year one, year two, probably even year three? No, I wouldn't. I'd still be on the rebuilding phase. 
but what I've found is after a few years of doing this, you can get back to a little bit of monoculture. Now, I would never do that again for another few years, likely, but this particular field, um, I just, you know, I thought, why not? Let's, let's see what happens and let's do it. But uh, most of the time, quite frankly, if I, if I don't have summer reload, I have a blend that's very, very close. And, you know, there's 15 to 17 different warm season uh, crops in there. Now, now, from the corn, I've actually gotten into agricultural consulting as well here with um, production ag on because it's the same, quite frankly, it's the same kind of principle. We, we are absolutely cutting out a lot of synthetics um, on a nitrogen standpoint. We're using the crimp, you know, roller crimper a lot. And then, yeah, the in, inner seeding, as you noted, has become a, a huge uh, beneficial practice. So, yeah, what, you know. Yeah, that would be my question because I have, I have a couple acres of corn and, and soybeans separated right now as monocultures that were drilled. Um, and the soybeans, for sure, I was uh, um, going to go through in August and September and, or September, whatever it is, and uh, broadcast a cover into them. Um, but I was wondering, obviously, it would be difficult to broadcast into a standing cornfield in August. Would it be beneficial right now to go out and broadcast a uh, clover mix or a, something that will take off through the summer in that cornfield? Uh, you know, there's a lot of research going on. There's, I have interceded at the same time of planting corn, and I don't want to say struggled with it, but the timing is not ideal from the plant standpoint. So it, there's definitely something to interceding at that V3, V4 stage of corn, which let's just say roughly E high. It's, yeah. The corn, you know, corn is a very expensive, it's a demanding plant, especially when we're asking it to, you know, to produce, you know, a fairly uh, substantial yield. And you need to let it get to that. You should, I shouldn't say you need to. It, it's always it makes farming easy when you allow it to get to that knee high stage, or you know, just below that point uh, before you intercede into it. But yeah, that's you know, interceding in the corn has has been. Um, a hugely beneficial practice for wildlife. I know that obviously the, the farmers, the row crop guys do it from a, you know for soil health and obviously for coverage all winter um, or in the event that they cannot get on the field post-harvest to put in the cover crop. Um, but, you know, I, I went ahead and had a, had a John Deere 7000 made on, you know, corns on 30-inch centers. I had a John Deere 7000 made with uh, uh, 30, or I'm sorry, 16-inch centers. Now, the idea is not to put corn on 16-inch center. It is to put it on 32. So I've got a four-row here on the farm, and it goes corn beans, corn beans. So in other words, I'm you know I'm using my John Deere planter. I've got corn in row, one row, beans in the next row, and they alternate like that. Um, I I have found I can get a very good crimp terminate ahead of that or behind that, and uh, drill, or I should say plant, that, that blend in, and that management program works really, really well. Obviously, it's a, a custom piece of machinery that I, I think I paid $6,300 for, or something like that, but yeah, can be done. 
But you could also get into that, you know, knee-high corn and just hand broadcast. You're right, right. Um, your interstate mix. The key with that, I would caution everyone, to typically put you, unfortunately, right around the hot, dry summer months. Um, so the key to that technique is to find the moisture. The moisture's coming. And again, this is where you're a farmer. Some years are great. Others are, you know, kind of bust. But the, the key in getting a good set, good stand on that is to have plenty of moisture when you get it out there. Yeah, I find anytime you broadcast it, I don't ever broadcast anymore unless I know, unless the the forecast just showing high, high chances of rain. Even uh, like the hurricane that rolled through Wisconsin this week was a perfect one. I went and seeded a bunch of stuff right before it. Um, what a weird thing to say to a hurricane rolled through Wisconsin. But um, <laughs> yeah, so that's interesting because I was just so, so say here, you know, the common saying knee high by the 4th of July. So you know, maybe in, in two or three weeks here, um, what is the, the blend that you could see that would make most sense um, to go ahead and just broadcast out into those corn? Well, you know, the, we, we play around with the interceding blend really on a, for instance, you mentioned Wisconsin. I've got a client this morning. We were, um, I was blending 125 acres worth of interceding, interceding mix, obviously not the, the food plot application, although he is a, He's a food plotter and a, and a farmer, but um, you know his his blend. Uh, it'll it'll look something like I was talking about with the the, the fall reload, and then he'll have um, pretty much everything but grasses. Corn being a grass, we don't want to get you know too much competition in there, sucking away um, from the, the obviously the, the nitrogen in the soil, which is all organic at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there will be some grasses because the secondary goal is really to have some some massive volume of plant residue come back next year, which will crimp, terminate, and drill summer reload into, again, for a sort of a, a year off, um, you know, to allow it to, the soil to, to rebound. But, you know, you, you'll see a lot, obviously, the radish, you'll see some, brass, you know, some other brassicas, um, we, I really like, you know, the clovers, crimson clover, red clover. Uh, you'll see a lot of things like flax and cecilia and, you know, stuff like that. So, again, we'll we'll hit the major plant groupings, um, but we're also thinking about next year and making sure that we have enough come back. So there will be some cereal rye. And, um, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan anymore of, of wheat as an inner seed crop we still use it but we take so long to mature the following year that it typically doesn't crimp down with with everything else but uh and there's some other species triticale is one of them that depending on the the region can can sort of give you headaches on crimp terminating yeah and you wouldn't worry about uh like the radish turnip type species being planted too early like that in july no no, and, and what you'll find is as that canopy closes, the plant growth on the radish may slow down. Okay, yeah. And then as that corn browns down and those those rows open back up and obviously you capture more sunlight energy, those those radishes will, will take off. But if a guy wanted to do a pretty, you know, pretty simple no-brainer um, and wasn't overly concerned about next spring having plenty of, of um, biomass to crimp, 
yeah, I think radish, crimson clover, uh, maybe even some medium red clover and uh, really anything else from a legume standpoint that he or she could get a hold of uh, would work real well with corn. Yeah, and, and not to mention, it's just a phenomenal uh, attraction for, for deer. <laughs> I mean, how, right. it doesn't get any better than a, than a buck bedding in a corn stand and having clover and radish to eat. Yeah, and you look at the you look at the agricultural uh, cover crop. Um, I know you talk about green cover or whatever that company is, green cover crops or green cover seeds. Green cover seeds. Yeah. yeah, I was looking through their website the other day, and it's like your cover crops for agriculture are are the <laughs> fall food plots that you see on all the popular um, food plot bags, pretty exactly. much. Um, and, and, and that's and it's. Yeah, that's why it's so frustrating it's like it's so it's so it's like it just seems so obvious right like okay so cover crops are super beneficial you're probably planting them anyways but instead you're but you're tilling it and you know completely starting over in august instead you could you could have everything planted and then just broadcast in or, or drill in um later in the year with that standing forage already there that's right. And it I, just seems know, had, too when simple. I started this whole soil health thing years ago, I had a, a soil scientist say to me, well, do your, your guys, you know, we were trying to marry this whole soil health thing with obviously still attracting bucks and, you know, doing what we do. He said, well, do, you, do your guys plant cover crops? And I laughed. I said, that's all we plant. That's, that's primarily what our attraction plots are is covers, right? If you think about it, it's like you say. Yeah, the classic. Oats, brassicas, yep. <clears throat> and clovers. And, you know, one, the food plotting companies obviously promote, still promote that. The reason they don't like diversity, quite frankly, is because it takes a lot of thought and a lot of cash to, you know, uh, Keith and Brian Burns with Green Cover, who you mentioned, that's who I work closely with on all of my um, multi-species mixes. You know, those guys have over 150 different species on hand. Now, if you have any idea what it costs both in, in, you know, infrastructure and manpower and money to maintain the logistics of, of, <laughs> of getting that seed, sourcing that seed and then managing inventory. It's, it's colossal. And yeah. quite frankly, the Whitetail Institutes and the Tecamates and the Evolved and all those guys, they don't make enough money to, to lose any more in inventory. Right. Um, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you're super busy. Uh, you've been extremely helpful, but I think the final thing that we mentioned earlier is just what is your observations been as from a hunting standpoint, how has the hunting either improved, stayed the same? Um, I mean, you look at it like staying the same of what you were doing earlier is a win because you're, you're, even if you stay the same and you're, you're exponentially improving your property. Um, but I have, probably have a feeling that I've, I've heard you mention before that it's a little bit better than just the same. Yeah, you know, the first thing we noticed was the savings. Um, certainly, we were never hurting for money from the management side of things, but when you're looking at fifteen or $17,000 uh, or, or $5,000 or $1,000. Could you actually, with that, with that money thought in process, could you break down what you think, say, just let's, let's just use an acre monoculture acre before what it would cost with all the inputs and then what you think an acre right now would cost somebody with this model just basic like so we could just throw some numbers around for people to understand yeah, yeah. you know 
know, I, I used to I used to get calls all the time from guys who wanted food plots, and they'd say, you know, I understand it's it's a very cheap and cost effective approach to, to bringing in more deer, and I would laugh and say, whoever told you that, you should, you know, call them back and fire them because food plots are not cheap. There's nothing right. cheap about them, um, both to the checkbook and to the ecology. But you know, I, I've seen guys I, when I used to do budgets. I kind of got out of it because now we're cutting synthetics so much that we're saving thousands. But I've seen guys invest six, seven hundred dollars per acre. You know that was their budgetary uh, allotted amount. You know per year in seed, fertilizer, chemical. You know six, seven hundred dollars an acre. I can remember. I, I've got a few clients in mind who put that much just in fertilizer out. <laughs> Jeez. So yeah, it's just insane. Now I think you know you could probably get it done, and that's two fifty, three hundred per acre. If you're, you know, um, uh, if you're intense about it. But now, you know, even if you spend a couple hundred dollars per acre, to you know, we sell reload. I think it's typically one hundred and fifty bucks or so for an acre. Sounds expensive, but when you try to source that many different species and then ship a super dense bag of seed. You know, across the country, yeah. um, it, it, there's really not that much profit in it when you're when it's all said and done. But um, you know, I, like I said, I can remember my first year. I think it was twelve thousand dollars. I didn't have in fertilizer expenses, and I didn't know. You know, I didn't understand where all this money come from. And that's because for twelve years, thirteen years, I had in the budget. Know, ten to fifteen thousand dollars a year to fertilize monoculture corn, soybeans, and and brassicas. Um, you know, so now obviously we've cut that drastically. Uh, if you're not using chemicals, um, which I'm not, many of us are not. It's it's a it's a very significant saving. So from the from the management end of it, as you can imagine, when I work with clients, the budget's a pretty well, they can afford to hire a consultant and they certainly make money other ways and they have plenty of resources. It's always a concern. I can remember a major league baseball player had a significant sign-on bonus alone and he was complaining about his supplemental feed bill. So everybody has a budget. I don't care how much money you have. Uh, that was the first observation was, holy cow, we can start buying things like roller crimpers, uh, maybe more out-of-state hunts, uh, maybe a drill, maybe more land, you know, as, as time goes on. And then from a, from a, you know, attraction standpoint, you and I talked about, I don't know if we were recording or not, but you start to look at, at, at a food source um, differently. It's no longer the, the photograph that you're trying to get on the cover of a magazine. It's not a monoculture, you know, soybean or, or corn or brassica plot with clover. Uh, you know, now I look at diversity and I think that's, that's beautiful. That's exactly what wildlife prefers. That's what they need. Um, so, you know, I, I, when we started to go that route, food plots looked different. We noticed deer, <laughs> deer came to agricultural planning that we put in for other purposes just because there was high diversity in them. And the pollinator preserve is the perfect example. I, hate to keep bringing this up. I've had visitors to the farm who heard the story on podcasts and whoever else I've told it, but when you plant a, a 59-way blend for pollinators and special, you know, beneficial insects, and you can't keep the does and fawns and bucks out of it, 
you start to scratch your head and wonder why on earth are they walking across all these fields, including string beans, alfalfa, corn, soybeans, and the neighbor's fields, to get to this tiny half acre where they can get plantain and chicory and Cecilia and flax and all these other plants that they just novel novelty type plants they've never seen. So absolutely 110% have noticed uh, more turkey poults, which our turkey population here um, in large portions of Pennsylvania is drastically on the decline. I don't, I don't think um, the game commission wants to admit that, but it is. Um, so from an attraction standpoint, you know, they, they look differently. Uh, you know, my kids, my kids have always kind of peeked out of the blinds in rifle season, and they're used to seeing corn on one side, beans on the other, and, you know, maybe a perennial strip down the middle. I can remember this year, a couple years ago, I had some crazy things going on, uh, a lot of trial stuff, and one of them opened the window and, <laughs> and just kind of laughed and said, what, what do you have going on out here, Dad? What are you doing? And uh, they, you know, they, they, of course, experienced success like they always had, so um, certainly no loss there. Yeah. I mean, it should be exciting for people. It's, you, I know the first thing I look at when I look at a property is you, you take that you, you take the aerial and you you zoom way out or you drive around, you know, like a 20-mile perimeter to see what, all the different food that's in that area that you're competing with. And, you know, the first thing you tell someone is you want to get something different, diversity. And this is, I mean, no one, not many people are doing this, so most likely your neighbors aren't doing it. Um, and like no, you said, yeah, I mean... Fact, you, you probably heard me say I wish more would follow, and I've been preaching this on podcasts, and I write the whitetails column for Peterson's boat hunting, and I write as much in there as they'll let me, or they'll allow me to, to write in there. And you know, I've had clients say, "Will you stop it? Will you stop telling people about this?" Because it's, yeah. you know, after 20 years of managing, you know, with with whitetails to clover or evolved whatever, they say this this is unreal, and we've got a perennial reload. That certainly my intention was not to promote it, but again, it was taking you know, perennial plants and putting them in the right species mix. And, you know, it's it just the, the, the level of attraction is so cool. And I wish I could claim that we invented this, but it's na- we're just copying off of nature. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, for someone who might be still a naysayer, is there, have you noticed um, just, just they're like, well, tell me exactly what your results have been hunting wise on these properties and, have you guys had you know more encounters? You know, is it, does it seem like you're, you're more deer are attracted to your property before? Because um, obviously you manage your property before for deer. Um, have you have you noticed any uptick in in just your general hunting? That's that's really hard to say. I think I would be lying to, if I said that you know wow we're attracting six and a half year old bucks from the next county. Um, I I can say this. In the next five years, maybe seven years, there will likely be a plant density or nutrient density meter that I can take into the monoculture soybean and the monoculture clover field, maybe take a snap of a a leaf and give you the nutrient density and the nutrient profile of that forage. I can also take that same meter in my field and, I, and, and take a snap of the nutrient density. And I'm here to tell you, as a biologist, I understand who's going to win right now. So yeah. as I've asked 
some of the naysayers, which, you know, you can't force anyone to do anything. I, I believe firmly in that. And honestly, it wouldn't be as fun if there were, if, if there weren't any naysayers. I, I enjoy those, those guys and girls. But I always ask people, if that meter comes out, if the bionutrient density meter comes out, are you comfortable? Are you comfortable with me comparing your food plot to your yard and then comparing it to a regenerative uh, farmer such as myself or anybody else for that matter who has gotten into the, the soul health regen movement. If you're comfortable with that, keep doing what you're doing. But we've we've noticed, and it's unless you do this yourself or visit a farm, um, I had a gentleman visit me, he's a chiropractor, visit us the other night. He just, he's heard about it like you and others and just wanted to see it. And he came here and he was, he was blown away. I ran the roller crimper for him and he laid down on it like a mattress this is unreal I could, I could sleep on this thing and, yeah um you know so that, we have noticed differences but a lot of those differences you just have to go visit the place and just observe you just stand there and you know he dug down through what i had just crimped terminated and was finding insects he said he hadn't seen since he was a kid and he didn't you know a lot of i didn't you know i didn't know what the heck most of them were but we were just you know he was blown away by the the bird species that we were seeing. So, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to you and say that this is attracting more bucks and bigger bucks. I personally, in my gut, believe it is. Um, and I also believe we'll get over that or you know, beyond that that glass ceiling of you know whatever our our standard eight point hundred and forty inch animal is. I think we'll break that by ten to twenty inches just in having nutrient dense landscapes. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's kind of the final question is, um, what's your prediction? Where do you see this going in the next five to ten years? Do you, I, I think the the more people are, that are like you, um, that talk about it, it just I feel like it's such a strong common sense theory, idea, not even a theory because it's you know proven. Um, where do you see this going? You see it, you see it getting becoming more mainstream. Yeah, I do. I do. I think it's going to be slow moving um, just because it takes a certain level of gut, um, a threshold to be able to look at a, a, a food plot and change your, and they don't all look ugly or dirty, if you will. But um, I, I see, you know, maybe 10 years. I don't know if, if very much is going to occur in five years. Um, I know we'll, we'll, we're going to learn. We're learning. It, it's really all kind of a, an experiment along the way. And you know, you said it at some point, you said it really all just makes sense. And, you know, if I had a nickel for everybody I heard say that on a daily basis, you know, I would be in great shape. It, 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 at this point, it really does just make sense to so yeah. many people. Um, and, you know, we're, we have tangible results, uh, but you can't ever force anyone. It just, it just has to make sense, and they have to take it at their own pace. And I certainly did that, you know, if it wasn't for two two good friends in southern Alabama I would have never had to kick in the rear end to just go cold turkey I've always been I readily admit I was a chemical I believe in using chemistry it was just to me it was the best way of pushing yield and and pushing clean plots and now I look back and my sprayer's sitting in the barn I spray some biologics but my sprayer's in the barn now with pink antifreeze in it most of the time and 
it's, it's almost hard to, to comprehend going back to that management. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be exciting to – I can't wait to transform this place and it would complete monoculture corn and, I mean, a 30-acre egg field that was one – wasn't even – they didn't even have rows. So it was just corn last year, corn beans rotated. Um, so it'll be exciting to see how much topsoil, topsoil growth and all the positives that we'll make Absolutely. here. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I know a lot of this stuff sounds kind of rah-rah, like cheerleader type stuff. But, I, you know, as I tell clients, you really need to be patient, you know, and, and observe. Observe things along the way. This isn't going to happen in two to three years. I use that two to three years because it seems like after two full seasons, of running like a reload series through the ground and, you know, cutting back. You know, there's there's 50-plus-year-old data that shows you can cut your nitrogen fertilizer in half, just break, you know, 50% bam, mm-hmm. without any any blips in yield. I mean, you, you will not experience a yield loss if you cut it in half, period. So even taking that monumental yet baby step is, is fairly significant, but... I tell clients, you know, I've been doing a lot of work in Texas Hill Country, just bought a property there. Uh, I tell clients in the Hill Country that, you know, that, that you know, it, <laughs> they do get 23 to 26 inches of rain, but it's still Texas. It's hot, it's dry, it's, you know, very, very thin soil, low organic matter. Um, you know, they need to commit for 10 years. If they're not willing to commit for 10 years, then they should probably keep doing what they're doing. And, you know, in, in Wisconsin and places like, you know, Pennsylvania and, even New York, you know, these northern states, we are so blessed with, it's easy. I mean, all we can do is screw up here. It's, you know, these, we have very abrupt seasons, very, you know, we can use winter termination to our advantage. There's a lot of my clients who can't use winter termination to their advantage. So Yeah. Yeah, I know patient, this, I this spring is, yeah, this spring for us has been pretty, we have been blessed with just really good timely rain and even that, you know, our areas, I technically live, I live in the, what's called the driftless region. So we, we have the high, high hills and, and, uh, we have a serious issue with flooding mainly because of the conventional model, because there's so, mm-hmm. there's nothing to hold that water up on top of the hills. Um, That's right. so, you know, like something like what happened this week with that tropical storm that came through, everyone was, you know, preparing for the worst and we got really lucky, but especially in places like this with these with so much runoff and so many issues with it i think that's that might be one part of the reason why i'm so i'm so into it as well because it just it seems to solve that problem as well our biggest issue here is is the runoff the flooding how many it is causing major issues here as well yeah and that you know i've I've got a client up by lake erie and that that bothers me you know there's he he was he sunk two hundred fifty thousand dollars after his township sort of sued him <laughs> that's a long story but you know that they blamed him and, and the um the fact that his land was was harvested of, of its timber and it, 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 I, I went around and did and ran infiltration tests and you know the guys who sit on the the, the county and the township boards are, are all farmers and they were all plowing and what they don't understand is they've destroyed the soil structure there's no infiltration it's mm. not retaining water in the dry periods um, they're destroying soil organic matter. His, some of his soil organic matter contents were up in the 13 to 15 percent, and and we're you know he's dropping a quarter of a million dollars to to fight a suit, and now wow. we're in one percent. 
so wow. it, it really is a problem all over. The, and it's not just farmers. It's also the fact that we like building cities and concretes and or parking lots and, you know, concrete is, is, is a major issue as well. Hmm. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time today. I, I could sit and probably talk to you for hours, but um, <laughs> this is probably a, a good place, and hopefully we'll have you on again. Um, Absolutely. I enjoyed it. I hope your listeners enjoyed it. And yeah. I, I would encourage everyone just to take, you know, baby steps, um, anything you can do, even from cutting back on your your um, chemical usage, you know, 30 40%. The plants will die, trust me. Yeah, and once again, Jason, where can people uh, find content and, and find your products at? Uh, com is, is the seed line. My consulting company is Drop Time Wildlife Consulting. Uh, both of them have websites. And, uh, you know, if anybody has a specific question, uh, Jason at com, And then, as you noted before, you know, we've, we've got a, everything has a Facebook page. Um, even though I'm not a huge fan of social media, it's not a good place to message me. I certainly don't um, spend too much time on it, but I do enjoy sharing some of the things we're doing on there. But um, yeah, so the seed, the seed site, and then uh, Jason at Drop Pine Seeds probably the best way to uh, get a hold of me if you have questions. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you coming on, man, and appreciate the work that yeah. you do. Absolutely, Taylor. I appreciate you having me, and. Uh, great podcast you have there i've listened to them and they're they're fun to listen to and i think you should crank out keep cranking them yeah we get a little riled up especially yeah, when I'm, a, I'm a i'm a podcast addict from, yeah. from the very first one that came out i'm just a huge fan of podcasts yeah yeah they're awesome you don't get that long form of conversation anymore i'd like to do more and more in person you know we get to that point but sure not the world we live in this year <laughs> All right, man. We appreciate well, it. Well, any, 